This week on The Fulbright Project. Overnight, hundreds of protesters shut down LA's massive 405 freeway in both directions. As night fell on Memphis, more than a thousand demonstrators took to this bridge, bringing Interstate 40 to a standstill. I think the reason that the organizers used the phrase Black Lives Matters was not because they said they were suggesting nobody else's lives matter. In the case of an American Negro, it comes as a great shock to discover the flag which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. Welcome to the Fulbright Project, a collaborative history blog featuring PhD students and alumni from right here at the University of Arkansas. We'll be analyzing the Black Lives Matter movement. We'll be focusing a lot on putting this contemporary movement in its historical context, discussing precedents in the 19th century as well as the 20th century, and really emphasizing ways of continuity and divergence Joining me today on the podcast is Misty Nicole Harper, a PhD candidate from the University of Arkansas, and she's working on a dissertation entitled, And They Entered as Ladies, When Race, Class, and Black Femininity Classed at Central High School. Also with us today is Kelly Houston-Jones. She recently received her doctorate from the University of Arkansas in 2014, and her dissertation is entitled, The Peculiar Institution on the Periphery. Slavery in Arkansas. So fittingly, with us today we have a 19th century historian of African American uh, studies and slavery writ large in American history, and Misty here will represent the 20th century portion of that as well. My name is Michael Shane Powers. I focus on late 19th century American South and Latin America. So a podcast on Black Lives Matter, especially in the wake of, if you're familiar, the recent uh, Chronicle article on the Trump syllabus that featured predominantly white historians there. So as we do, do this podcast here on Black Lives Matter, all of us being historians who are not of color, how in each of your views can white historians objectively and accurately shed light on racial matters? I'll start. I have to address this with every class that I've ever taught that is focused on African-American history. This coming semester will actually be the first semester that I haven't taught an African-American-based course. So, so that'll be new for me because I always go in and I tell my students right up front if they can't tell that I am, in fact, a white woman. And so once that awkwardness is out of the way for most of them... I tell them that, you know, I can't ever explain black history through a black experience. That in as much as I have studied, I continually have to listen to black voices and let I have to take a back seat often in my research, in places that I go, in, in places where I am participating, I often have to take a back seat and set aside Myself, I can't center myself in order to better understand Black history and then to explain it and distill it to my students, if that makes sense. That's my personal approach. I don't know that that works for every white historian who, who studies Black history. 
Kelly, yeah. would you like to join in on that? So I absolutely agree. And that's exactly what I do at the beginning of each class that I teach. In fact, I was hired at Austin P to specifically teach all periods of African-American history. And so every single class that I teach to begin with that discussion. And so I begin by talking about race as a category. And then I ask the students, well, then, okay, how is it that there is a white woman teaching this course. And I find that the students are also wondering that. And so we just have that, we break the ice with that. And then I let them discuss this. And frankly, they're not always all of them sold on the premise of a white person teaching African-American history. And specifically, if it happens to be an African-American studies course, because that's got sort of a different element um, to it. But what I do always tell students in the classroom and students with which I interact uh, about racial matters um, outside, you know, of the curriculum is that it's not actually about me that the topic at hand, I, my role is to help them understand and articulate their own thoughts and their own questions. And so that's, that's the role that I see myself in. And so this is where I, I really want to make sure and mention that at Austin P, we recently had a nationally reported incident where there was um, an art display of nooses hanging from trees on campus that was accompanied by no labels that this was an art display or explaining what it is. And so a student walking from the cafeteria to the library would encounter these nooses hanging from a tree with no explanation. Wow. And this created a huge um, you know, uproar on our campus. And so it was one I of those so. moments you know, outside of the classroom where students wanted to talk about it. And so again, I just, I, I figured my role was to listen and yeah. um, help them think through their own reactions. So I guess that's my uh, fairly long answer to the question of um, how, to, how to approach this as someone who is not of color, but, his, but who is trying their best in, in the context of academia, you know, to facilitate helpful conversations conversations where people feel safe, you know, to voice their opinions or, you know, tough questions. Yes. Yeah. And I think as we delve into these issues further, that even on the uh, broadest sense, this question of how do historians who are not of color address racial matters also gets at two other themes. One being in higher education and even within the discipline of history, uh, African-Americans and really other racial minorities are underrepresented as uh, tenure-track professors at most institutions. So it, that gets at, at issues of African-American opportunities for higher education and others. And then locally, the University of Arkansas, as many other or most southeastern college universities, is a predominantly white institution, of course, as well. So that is an issue within the student body also. Yeah, same, same at Austin P. just to chime in, a similar situation, which the students are very aware of. Mm-hmm. So and I think that Fayetteville has a unique issue that that faces it as opposed to a place like, for example, an, an Old Miss or an LSU in that geography also isolates us. So it's already a predominantly white area. It's the Ozark Mountains. For those of you listening in who, who aren't sure where U of A is, it's in the Ozark Mountains in what is already a predominantly white area. So access and understanding and comfort with the culture up here is, is another problem that I don't know faces every other southeastern school so I, I think that that's something that we have to contend with as well is that you know just accessibility and and perhaps comfort level with with people of color coming to this institution is a problem that we also have to contend with that's unique to us so. mm-hmm. yeah. that's a really good point okay so setting up here our uh, podcast and as we delve into these questions Black Lives Matter, the movement, of course, uh, really arising after the events in Ferguson, Missouri, a couple years ago with the death at the hand of police officers there. And so a few here, even as historians, of course, acknowledging the importance of, of uh, quantitative measurements in regards to uh, criminality. We're seeing a lot of emphasis on previous studies that are nothing new, but that really highlight how this is a significant problem. Data from as recent as 2010 shows that black youth comprise about 17% of all youth, but yet represent 31% of all arrests. 
much more likely to be uh, processed rather than be diverted, uh, more likely to be sent to solitary confinement. And of course, uh, statistics portraying that uh, African-American men younger ages, late teens to 20s, much more likely to die at the hands of a police officer than white males in proportion. But interestingly, too, as we'll be delving into not just the legal and violence side of things, but how it intersects with politics and the economy, one really interesting study that came to light here a while uh, just a couple years ago was a study partnering with the University of Chicago in 2003 that mailed out thousands of resumes to employers with job openings and sent the exact same resume with the only differences being one resume stereotypically African-American names and the other resume stereotypically white names, and that roughly 50% of these resumes were more likely to result in a callback for an interview if they had a, quote, white name. And, of course, they're highlighting the only attributable difference in that factor would be assumptions towards African-American identity. So with some of this framework, then, of ongoing ways that there are some still significant avenues here for African-American discrimination and, and prejudice, let's take this a step back as historians and maybe assess here some other elements or precedents within American history, particularly between law enforcement and racial power. Have we seen some other examples, maybe in the 19th century, Kelly, in ways that American society, be it legal or institutional or cultural, have used legal use of force and law enforcement to uphold a white-centered power. Yeah, sure. The thing that comes to probably many listeners' minds most immediately, as well as my mind, is the slave patrol. The very memorable scene in 12 Years a Slave where the enslaved people are forced to sing this song about the slave patrol. And slave patrols are just a huge sort of symbolic part of the memory of slavery as well. But, of course, they were a very real part of policing black bodies in the 19th century South. And we can, you know, if you guys want to, we can rewind and talk about, you know, this in an earlier period. But for me, in the mid-19th century, especially in the sort of scattered, lightly populated, maybe a little more rugged, wilder uh, part of the trans-Mississippi South, the slave patrol is something that's more ad hoc. It's something that we imagine a slave patrol as very consistent, very well organized. These people are sort of, they've got their route that they run and it's on time and everybody sort of knows what's happening. And that was not really always the case. And that's actually one of the things that created issues in slaveholding communities. So enslaved people who are somewhere where they're not supposed to be, okay, without a pass, or if there's some sort of misunderstanding, there's not they're not as likely to come across a very well-organized slave patrol as somebody who was known to be a runaway. So what I'm trying to get at here is that it was it really had a lot to do with space and place. Are African American enslaved people where they are supposed to be when they are supposed to be there? If they are found not to be, then whites would sort of gather up this ad hoc patrol and go after them. So that, to me, is kind of an important distinction because in the work that I'm looking at, that I'm doing right now on slave lynching, this is where these violent encounters often happen. You have an ad hoc posse of people who are sort of working as a slave patrol, pursuing someone or a couple of people who have run away. And then when that clash ensues, is if the enslaved people come out of that having been killed, is that a lynching? Be just because it's something that's called for in the county government, you know, for that patrol to exist, is it, is it technically legal or is it extra legal? So these are the kind of conflicts that I'm finding. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up in this very sort of roundabout way is because the same wording, the same desperate explanations that people in these ad hoc slave patrols use to justify deadly force against a slave in trying to apprehend them is eerily similar to the types of explanations that we hear now in the 21st century for members of law enforcement using deadly force against African-American men. And so what I mean to say is he had a knife and he was coming after me and he would have overpowered me so I had to shoot. These, this sort of one-sided story where you're never going to get, you know, the other side, they're eerily similar. And you might be asking yourself, and this is something that 
you know, I have asked myself, why scramble to justify that deadly use of force in an inherently brutal system where everybody knows that people are going to use force to uphold the regime? The answer to that question is the motivation economically, the profit. So if you are a slaveholder and your slave is killed in one of these sort of, you know, posses looking to apprehend a runaway, you're out. That investment this is very crude you know, to, to put it this way, but this is the way um, the, the society works. And so these lower class, okay, lower socioeconomic status, white folks who are using deadly force are having to scramble to justify the use of that deadly force. The thing that makes it different after the war, of course, is that that value on black life is removed, right? Mm -hmm. There, no, right. no one paid $1,200 for that body. And so there isn't, you're, there is, you don't have that sort of scramble to explain why that person's not alive yeah. anymore. Good. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at too then, right, is that we are drawing false distinctions if we try to separate race from economics, mm -hmm. that there always has been a consideration of racial difference and power with exploitation. As I was listening to Kelly, I haven't studied slave patrols extensively, but I, I do know the basics of obviously, you know, what they were designed to do. I didn't realize how ad hoc they were. And I was listening to Kelly talk about, you know, these, these peripheral areas of the South where slave patrols existed, but they're not uniform, that they, they don't have codes from place to place to place so that everybody is following a set pattern of how to deal with escaped slaves versus slaves that you might see out with a pass from a master, that there's no yeah. real way to differentiate these folks, is that is so frighteningly similar, not only to what we see um, in the 20th century, but to what we see now with police forces, that there is zero uniformity in the way that police forces deal with black communities from city to city or town to town. And that is, we, we've seen, unfortunately, through the news, how, how true that is with, with every new instance that comes on one of the major networks. And that was also true in the 20th century, that Kelly is absolutely right. After the war is over, the value placed upon a Black body is gone. And we see that reverberate all the way now into the present, where the question is, what value is a black body if white people are not assigning value to that person? And depending on where you are with, within the South depends on the severity of how, for example, the Klan, an extra legal, a, a paramilitary force would deal with you versus how state-sanctioned police would deal with, with black people, black communities, or an errant black person in a place where, as, as Kelly really beautifully said, might be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or sometimes even in the right place at the right time, doing whatever activity white society deemed was valuable to white society and therefore appropriate for a black person to, to be engaged in. That was what really struck me the most, is that there is this terrifying parallel between white supremacist groups that fashion themselves as these extra legal police that are they're totally in tandem with state-run police forces and the one that comes to my mind most obviously and will probably come to listeners minds as well as virtually any community in the state of Mississippi that all of these the goal of all of these forces in the 20th century is to just as brutally and as efficiently um, terrify black communities into behaving into white norm standards or dying because the only way for value to be attached to a black body is if you are behaving in a white standard. But is that making <laughs> sense to you guys? <laughs> it yeah, does. Yeah, Actually, yeah. Um, it reminds me exactly of one of the um, little newspaper clippings that you can often find use it's it's on the Encyclopedia of Arkansas website and we always used to use it teaching Arkansas history back when I was at the U of A and it's this newspaper clipping that was released right after the Elaine race riot of 1919 and it says Negroes stop talking go back to work this 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 wasn't the type of white supremacy the type of hatred where 
we hate you go away. This is <laughs> just, can you just work and not do anything else? And that was exactly that. Like you said, that was the value that was placed on them. And this is coming again from landholders who are afraid that those types of, well, let's just call it you know, massacre. There's no, you know, overstating it, um, that it would disrupt what, like, like you said, black people doing what whites thought they should be doing at the right time at the right place. Good. Yeah. I, and one thing I guess maybe we could talk about too is while we are all historians of the South, I think in one way that we see this Black Lives Matter movement having some similarities to uh, the 19th century and then really increasing into the 20th with the very long, great migration of African Americans outside of the South is that these racial problems are more than just confined to the slave South, the Confederacy, or the former Confederacy after Reconstruction. The antebellum era, of course, riots in New York City over the uh, draft in the Civil War era after Reconstruction, or uh, during Reconstruction, rather, routine violence towards racial minorities of every stripe, as our Arkansas zone, Dr. West points out, with racial violence on the western frontier. So, if anything, as we've seen as well here, one thing maybe we can talk about is how has the use of law enforcement and racial power or racial discrimination writ large changed or stayed the same over periodizations of American history. In one way, maybe as I'm pointing out, has it always been a national problem, as we've seen with events in Ferguson and other areas outside of the South? So maybe dovetailing off of that, Missy, could you kind of expand on how about during the era of Jim Crow, when we, no matter what political affiliation you may have, you can acknowledge, of course, that that was an era of extreme racism and white supremacy as the norm. Uh, so how was yeah, that rhetoric of law enforcement and use of racial power uh, maybe different or, or, or similar to the era that Kelly is mentioning? Well, I argue, and, and there are plenty of, of people who, who disagree with me, but I argue in the same vein that Dr. Michelle Alexander has argued whenever she wrote her book, The New Jim Crow, and it's about mass incarceration and the carceral state, that what we see in the current Black Lives Matter movement, the, their platform is arguing that the police state runs exactly as it's supposed to in the present because it is predicated upon these things that we no longer call Jim Crow or that we no longer call the slave codes, but they are the grandchildren of those laws, very much so. Uh, policing, what, what we have to remember, what we can't lose sight of is that in the 20th century, where, that is my field of expertise and in the 19th century, as is Kelly's field, that this is all perfectly legal. And it's not just perfectly legal, it's expected. Black bodies, black communities are policed in the 20th century via stringent Jim Crow laws that prohibit them from sharing any kind of public space with white people that might lead to any kind of intimacy with white bodies. So what we see whenever we see violence enacted against black men and women is whenever they're perceived to cross these rigid boundaries that are set up in 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson. And I think it's ironic that we talk about Plessy versus Ferguson now, and Ferguson, Missouri is really ground zero for the movement that, that is the point of this podcast. Hmm. The <laughs> ironies of history, as C. Van Ludwig said. I knew you guys would appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, that's that's what we have to recall here is that all of this is legal and all of it is expected. And in a Southern context, it's definitely de jure. It, it is the law of the land that black and white bodies don't share spaces in public. And then even in private, you are expected to maintain the bare modicum of decorum. And what I mean by that is and that you're not- This is in this Jim Crow era, correct? In the Jim Crow era, absolutely. For example, I do a lot of interviews with, with people in Little Rock, black and white, and it's cross-class lines. It's very intersectional. The white women who I speak to who are at least 75 years old and who came from solidly middle-class standings in the 1950s, which is the heart of my dissertation. That's, that's the era that I look at. These are women who would employ black maids to care for their homes, to care for their children. It was very mad men. And even inside of their homes where they would 
where black maids would come from the south side of Little Rock and they would enter this white family's home from the back door, they would see white families getting dressed. They might share a cup of coffee with a white woman who was standing in her robe and her hair rollers. But whenever there was a meal to be had in that house, the maid stayed in the kitchen where the white woman would go and sit at her dining room table. So these Jim Crow codes that are public are also observed in private. And so whenever any breach is noted at all of that, it is 100% expected that the police will crack down in order to reinforce that total separation all the time. So I think what we see in the 19th century, as well as what we see right now, is just a continuation of the same ideology. In the same conversation about enforcing space uh, and policing, you know, who can be where, um, sort of writ large, sort of town-wide, um, there is an incident that I always um, like to tell my students about when we talk about housing in urban places in the U.S. outside of the South. And in Chicago, a bus driver named Harvey Clark rented in an apartment in an all-white community um, in a suburb, suburb of Chicago called Cicero. And there was a huge mob. Some estimates are as high as 3,500 whites um, smashed the windows. They burned the apartment to the ground. And when None was this, Kelly? Those, this is 1951. Okay, so before Martin Luther King does his famous Cicero march. And so these rioters were arrested. None of them were indicted, or as many as they could grab. I'm sure they didn't grab 3,500 people. But these rioters who they arrested, none of them were indicted. But the owner of the building was for renting to an African-American. Uh, his actions were to depreciate property values by renting to a Negro, is the language they used. So when I think of riots, demonstrations that maybe get a little rowdy, you know, whether you're blocking I-40 or whether some people are smashing windows or if you're just sort of standing there with a sign, the way the public gets so very uncomfortable about that. And then if you hit rewind to this, just one of many incidents and, and find the, the sort of the flip side of that, right? And, and police are enforcing law and order. They're enforcing a particular type of law and order. And so just sort of add that to what we were saying about the Jim Crow South. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And what that also kind of hits on, what came to my mind at least with Kelly, your talk on the 19th century in this antebellum era, alluding also to Reconstruction and then Missy in uh, the 20th century with the height of Jim Crow in the 1950s, of course, in the middle of the Cold War, is that in some ways, maybe we can see some parallels here with the Black Lives Matter movement of the early 21st century, and that all of these eras, whether we're talking about the antebellum era with really rationing tensions with uh, anti-slavery and abolitionists in the North, very unsettling processes, uh, reconstruction with industrialization coming to the South, and then, of course, in the, the mid-20th century, in the midst of the Cold War and after World War II, with really now the South being fully integrated in national economies, is that, that very fact of an unsettled society, that the normative white Americans feeling the need to define an other and, and push back. And I think, to some degree, perhaps we can see some parallels with that today with uh, the white working class struggling with globalization, feeling that perhaps the culture they grew up in is changing. So basically we're highlighting a lot of uh, ways that at the end of the day, there's a lot of continuation and perpetuation of some, some key themes here when we're talking about the intersection of, of uh, racial discrimination, right? One, one at least, though, way to me, perhaps, that we do have some divergence in the wake of, and we'll address later some changes or not changes, uh, evolution of the struggle for racial justice after the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But unlike the 19th century at any period, and unlike the height of Jim Crow, do we not see at least a breakdown of condoning openly, rhetorically and physically, extra-legal violence? So we might see a perpetuation in, in legal uh, law and order, but don't see as much extra-legal violence, or do we? How would each of you answer that? That is a really good question. I think the answer is complicated because I, I don't think it's really clear cut either way. I think the answer is yes and no. I think from people who felt like they had the most to lose, you, you mentioned 
a while ago that the white working class today feels threatened by globalization. They feel threatened by th- this emerging culture that's that's not dictated necessarily by white-centric standards anymore. We are rapidly becoming a minority-majority country, or majority-minority, ha- however it is that, that you explain that that phenomenon, and that these people feel left behind. I think whenever we look back at the mid-20th century, at the height of the Cold War, you, you see those same people, and you see them lashing out more violently, not necessarily as organized as organizations like the KKK or, or other paramilitary groups, but you definitely see a more violent, intensified, kind of desperate backlash from those people where you do begin to see some pushback from more moderate people, from more solidly middle-class people, from people who feel like they have less to lose by acknowledging the the citizenship rights or the humanity, the basic humanity of, of African Americans. Inside of all of that, though, you still have a tacit acceptance that violence happens to black bodies across white America, regardless of class, regardless of circumstance, and sometimes even regardless of sentiment. Um, And I think that that's something we see right now. I had a person ask me on a social media account recently, why do we get so upset whenever we see that, you know, you, you have an incident like, like the uh, the recent Freddie Gray acquittal. The recent acquittal of those police officers were accused of, of murdering Freddie Gray in Baltimore. Why does that get airtime on CNN whenever constant random acts of violence in Chicago do not? And that's a really good question. I think it comes down to what have people been willing to accept are acceptable levels of violence against these communities. What is it that's hardwired into white America to think violence just happens to these people? Yeah, so so perhaps, Mr. you're saying that there are sporadic, more individualistic occurrences of extra-legal violence towards African Americans that does not have the explicit support of a, a mob of, of white Americans, as you might have had during the Jim Crow era, Yet, do do other white Americans perhaps make excuses for that? That's exactly it. You know, I mean, through the advent of media in the mid-20th century, you do see genuine white revulsion whenever people see um, on television or they see in newspapers or they see in magazines th- this kind of brutality. I mean, that's part of the success of the civil rights movement is that it's able to bring in white sympathy because these images and this horror is able to touch people directly in their own homes or in their own hands as they flip through it. But at the same time, there's still not masses of white people going into the streets to march alongside these people to secure to secure security for blackness. We don't see that, and we don't see that right now. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves, why is that? Because there is this historical precedence for it that violence has always been perpetrated against these communities. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so what is it that that breaches that acceptable barrier? Good, yeah. So one one that we're hitting on there then about violence being directed towards African Americans historically, we have also have a very long history rich in African American resistance, and often uh, resistance with combating that violence, either with the legal system, of course, with NAACP court cases, or uh, from the Union League in the aftermath of the Civil War to World War I and World War II, African American veterans returning home of African Americans resisting violence with violence. So if we flip the script here, let's maybe flesh out some ways historically that American society has dealt historically with minorities, African Americans in this case, bearing arms. How has that perhaps highlighted some contradictions or some hypocrisies in in white legal codes and rhetoric? But particularly, how have, have African Americans from the 19th century to today tried to resist that perpetuation of violence in, in various means? So I think that one of the things that probably many 19th century historians know is that guns were everywhere. People used them to hunt. People used them to carry on their persons for protection. It was something that free and enslaved African Americans may be in possession of, but in the 
particular context, a particular task. So again, it's all about, as far as whites were concerned, the right place and the right time, okay, to have a weapon. My research west of the Mississippi River, the sort of lawless um, periphery of the South, it's you're, it's something that you're, you're definitely going to see in the documents is that slaveholders were willing to allow enslaved people to carry guns to hunt, hunt with them. This is what, roughly what time frame? This is, well, I mean, it's it's really, this is all of it. I mean, this is, you can find it, you know, From my research. Settlement you know, of, of Arkansas. Yeah, through, you're going to find it in, um, you know, 1830s where the documents really kind of explode. Um, and then, you know, up through, of course, African Americans walking off plantations and picking up guns for the Union Army, right? So um, guns are there the whole time, but it's the, it's the particular context. Now, I'm not saying that legally, right, this is something that slaveholders are interested in breaking the rules when it benefits them. And, and so allowing enslaved people to, um, you know, carry weapons for protection and mostly, you know, to hunt, that's something that's happening, but it's got to be in that, you know, in that particular context. And so I guess what I, what I want to say about that is violence against enslaved people rarely had anything to do with guns. It usually had something to do with them not being in the right place at the right time and maybe having a gun, maybe having a stick, a knife, an axe, you know, which is, you know, a common tool for their work and using anything they could get their hands on if this person had decided to physically resist. So it really had very little to do with who can have a gun and who can't, but is this person, you know, resisting or not? You know, has this person decided, as you can find in the documents, some people simply decided they would not be taken alive, that they, that they were running or that they were in the heat of the moment, resisting a, a whipping or just in some way decided that, you know, that they were going to draw a line physically. And guns are rarely part, um, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily going to find that type of violence existing simply because an African-American has a gun and they're not supposed to. It, it's, it's just so much deeper than that. Jumping off of that, what, could you shed some light on and what jumped to my mind when mentioning the martial spirit of not only the South, but uh, mm -hmm. the pugnacity of Americans in the 19th century throughout the country is that this is also very gendered, right? And that these are independent men as they are perceiving themselves, showing that masculinity and independence by carrying weapons, whether it's a, a Bowie knife, uh, a hatchet, or any type of other a firearm. So I guess, would you say during this antebellum era as well, that is the access or inaccess to weapons of any kind is a way of stripping African-American men of, of masculinity as well? I, that, that's just very hard to say. And I'm thinking of, you know, like the documents that I come across where people mention hunting and being accompanied by a slave, um, an enslaved person, you know, maybe he's carrying a gun too, maybe he's not. That person is definitely in a helping role, which would be emasculating in itself, I guess, in the very manly thing of hunting, right? Like you're going to go you're going to go get the thing I shot, get out of the way, or I might accidentally shoot you. So, I mean, even then, those things that we think of as very, like, sort of masculine, even in a context where the enslaved person might actually be holding a gun and doing some of the shooting himself, he's there to help. He's there to serve at the pleasure of the person, you know, the, the landholder, you know, the person who's actually in charge of the hunting you know, trip. So that's one thing where you can sort of look at this with a gendered aspect. I'm also, there's, there's another instance in my research that's coming to mind where uh, one of the plantation mistresses down in Chico County, for some reason, was the only white adult in the household that evening. And something, I'm not sure what, made her nervous. And she posted outside of her bedroom door for the night, sort of as sentry, a trusted black male slave and I'm sure he must have had a gun. The way that she wrote was, it's such that, this is the Hilliard family, if anybody's you know, interested. Mm. The way that she noted this down was that, that she posted this man outside the door, like to sort of serve as sentry for the night because something shook her up. I don't know if it was a, a some sort of paranoia of slave rebellion that had sort of kind of floated through the community or something else, but... That's very that's very gendered, right? Like, so it's okay for yeah. a black man to be in that role if he's protecting her as a white woman, right? Yes. And so I'm sure he would 
have had a gun or else how effective could he really how could her deep fears really have been eased of course i have no proof of that just there's my caveat there i, I know sure. that he i know that that's that's what she said but as far as whether he had a firearm on him or not i'm not i'm not sure i could say yeah. well i know after the civil war with with even union veterans african-american union veterans returning being able to bring back their firearms many of these former confederate states passing black black codes that expressly barred freedmen from possessing firearms. And of course, the uh, KKK enforcing that as well. And then once Jim Crow in its full fashion comes to the 20th century, you also have a big crackdown on any type of African-American, at least overt independence when it came to firearms. That would be something that, that would be targeted. So Misty, maybe could you talk about, of course, if we mention African-American violently asserting themselves to combat some things in the 20th century, the Black Panthers are what really is going to jump to mind. So uh, how perhaps has a lot has been made of the NRA's lack of response over one of the recent deaths, his use of a concealed carry permit? So maybe how in earlier in the 20th century have we also seen white Americans perhaps talking out of both sides of their mouth uh, when it comes to their use of civil liberties for firearms, but not towards some other groups like the Black Panthers or others? Oh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> whenever you study this, and Kelly and I were talking earlier about, you know, some, some of the advantages of, of studying 20th century that, that bleeds into, of course, you know, 21st century, and that you have so much media at your disposal and, and just all kinds of resources. And this is something that I've kind of taken on as a side project recently, actually, is, you know, what I think of as, as white hypocrisy in the debate about the Second Amendment, because this is absolutely a problem that we see starting in the early 1900s, the 19-teens, really. Kelly had already mentioned the Elaine race riot of 1919 that is a direct response to hundreds of thousands of black veterans fresh out of the trenches of France who not only are they coming back not only are they coming back as veterans yeah. yes yes very emboldened and very proud of their military service but they've been that They've been treated with dignity and respect in France in a way mm -hmm. that they never have anywhere in the United States, much less if you live under legalized Jim Crow in the United States South. And these are men who they have come back as trained soldiers, trained veterans. And so you see the white public panic that not only are these people who absolutely know how to fight in combat, but they are armed in most cases. We see a rash of violence um, spring up in the Red Summer of 1919 that happens across the country. It's in Tulsa, it's in Chicago, it's in Detroit, it's in New York. We see all of these, uh, we see all of this civic unrest that is one part directly because of the war and because the war has emboldened these black men and these black women also. We, we shouldn't forget that black women, you know, this is part of a, a maybe a different discussion, but black women have never been um, under the confines of, of femininity in the way that white women have. Black women have always taken a more independent role sometimes out of necessity and then sometimes because of because of these cultural connotations that have come down from that necessity. So we see entire black communities that are armed and ready to to fight for their independence and that's absolutely something that we see now that is a problem <laughs> whenever we discuss responses to black lives matter. It terrifies the white public that black people are mobilized, organized, and are willing to fight back that there are people who no longer see the value of nonviolent resistance that was part and parcel to Martin Luther King's portion of the movement in the 1960s. These are people who are much more emboldened by the, the stay and fight resonance of the Black Panthers and of these, and of Black power movements in general that absolutely comes out of this civic unrest that you alluded to earlier, that, that is also reinforced by class tension and disorder that we see worldwide that's really personified in Bolshevism and the birth of communism, that lower mm -hmm. class people can, can attain some kind of power, some kind of platform and access. Access terrifies 
anybody who's controlled access who no longer has total control of said access. So we see mm -hmm. lots of things intersecting here that are being discussed right now. There, there's certainly a reason that Wayne LaPierre was not going to come out and talk about Mr. Castile, who was shot in, in Minneapolis earlier this summer, whenever he was a, a le totally legal to, to have a concealed weapon in his car. There's a reason that the NRA did, did not come out um, advocating for him or castigating the police officer who, who murdered him. And it's because of white discomfort with an arm a legally armed black public. That's yeah. historically well, terrifying. Yeah. One thing I find interesting as well that, that's perhaps uh, divergent is originally in the 19th century, the National Rifle Association, with its origins coming out of Civil War veterans, mostly white Civil War veterans informing that, was not overtly about defending itself against a tyrannical government. It, mm -hmm. was, it was obviously, and as we've been discussing, about policing white supremacy and enforcing white masculinity. And really, ironically, as a great article in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago highlighted, Malcolm X was one of the first to really emphasize at a national level, arguing that the Second Amendment should be used to, in this case, help African Americans protect themselves against a tyrannical government. And here we are in the 21st century now that that is the big national uh, or the big NRA push uh, for why the Second Amendment must be so cherished. So it's, it's quite ironic that we've uh, many white Americans are echoing Malcolm X in the uh, protection of uh, the Second Amendment. Okay, so lastly, how about let's address um, a few of the common critiques, misconceptions we might say that are quite common if you look, scroll down on the comment section of any YouTube video or or uh, other posts on Facebook, what have you. Uh, one often that uh, is familiar is uh, people saying that, well, the Black Lives Matter movement ignores black-on-black -black crime. Where are these Black Lives Matter movement people when African-Americans kill African-Americans in Chicago? We mentioned that. Um, or perhaps fundamentally misunderstanding the what proportion means when they say, well, more whites are arrested than blacks every year, right? So is this, is perhaps, is this a under-acknowledged, example of white privilege in which many white Americans cannot understand where African Americans are coming from? I definitely think so. I, I, I think, first of all, to, to ask that question, which is a complete straw man, what about black on black crime? First of all, black people do talk about black on black crime. If, if you read papers past headlines that the gun violence, the violence period problem that, that plagues this country is something that is discussed in page six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 of your newspaper, not just on the front page. Yeah. But what makes, what makes that argument utterly invalid for this conversation is that Black Lives Matter is about police violence against black communities. It's not about um, interpersonal relationships. It's not even really about intercommunity violence. It's about specifically police violence violence against black bodies, which historically it is, is perpetually higher than violence against white bodies. So, so that's the first misconception there that people have to understand. If anybody else wants to pick up on that. I was just going to say that colorblindness is a problem. We, this was like, we are all of, you know, like the same age group where when we were in elementary school, it's all about um, colorblindness and the color of someone's skin shouldn't be the thing that keeps them from, you know, success. And, and I think we're seeing the flaw, a major flaw in that, this, 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 I'm doing air quotes right now, colorblindness. Let's not teach our children colorblindness. Let's teach our children to be sensitive to different things that happen to different people. Let's be yes. sensitive to inequities in our society. Let's be vigilant and let's slow down and listen. I think for the um, all lives matter response to Black Lives <laughs> Matter, I think that people who are tempted to say this need to, and this is my prescription, I guess, ask themselves the very tough question of, why do I feel the need to diminish this cause? What is it that's making me feel uncomfortable? Why, why does my gut want me to say, well, all lives matter? And that's, that's, that's some searching that a lot of people really need to do. 
I think one one difficult issue is for many Americans to understand this as a spectrum that that absolutely a lot of progress has been made uh, since the traditional civil rights movement, if you will, from the early 1950s or, of course, even earlier than that, uh, uh, getting such huge successes uh, with the civil rights law and the Voting Rights Act. But I think that's where we really saw a large rise of this colorblindness was under the auspices of modern conservatism in the 1980s that with equality before the law, these racial problems are now over. And sadly, with Martin Luther King assassinated, the undisputed leader, president, as many people somehow conceive of MLK, of black people, not being able to challenge that notion. So this all lives matter outgrowth, as y'all are hitting on, absolutely rises out of the legacy of that colorblindness. Lastly, perhaps, so we're just three days removed here on August the 4th from the two-year anniversary of Ferguson, Missouri, and the uh, uh, upheavals occurring there. And recently, the uh, Movement for Black Lives, a umbrella organization here comprising a lot of different uh, local groups across the country, uh, just several days ago released a platform with six direct initiatives on them uh, that really, and, and one of the earlier perhaps critiques of the Black Lives Movement of would it have a coherent mission like the civil rights activists in the 1960s. So perhaps we'll, we'll briefly, we've, those six platforms are to end the war on black people addressing that uh, legacy of racial violence with law enforcement that we mentioned, a campaign to invest and divest into the community, campaign for economic justice, as we've also hit on, uh, community control, black power, uh, and lastly, de dealing directly with the 19th century cause or continued cause for reparations. Uh, so it, I think it's interesting to keep track of this Black Lives Matter movement as we go forward and see how uh, these legacies of the past continue to shape the movement. Well, thanks for a wonderful podcast. I thought that we really covered uh, quite the chronological terrain with a lot of different themes as well. And for those of our listeners that are around the Northwest Arkansas area, I'd like to encourage you to go this 22nd of August at the St. James Missionary Baptist Church will be a discussion uh, involving the community entitled Black Lives Matter, The Truth Behind the Movement. A social hour begins there this month of the 22nd at 6 p.m. with the program at 6.30. And its purpose is to continue to delve into some of these topics that we discussed today, giving into the, what they argue to be the true meaning of Black Lives Matter to dispel some myths and discuss what is needed uh, to ensure uh, this larger message continues. Uh, Who will be participating, uh, but a local circuit judge, Wendell Griffin, here of Little Rock, actually, and the University of Arkansas' own uh, Dr. Karee Banton, an assistant professor of African American Studies and History, will be the guest speakers, and KNWA's uh, own Channing Barker will serve as host. Uh, so again, if you're able to uh, go to that, I think that'd be a great continuation of these discussions, August 22nd, 6.30, at St. James Missionary Baptist Church. That will be all for this podcast here of the Fulbright Project. Thank you again, Kelly and Misty. It was wonderful having you. Thank you for hosting. Thanks for inviting me.